In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look at us all holding aloft our icons. What are we holding aloft? What are we grasping in our hands? We're looking a little bit apologetic here, brothers and sisters. Let's hold them aloft as if we mean it. Or are we a little bit apologetic? Are we not sure? Are we a little afraid of holding aloft our icons? What is it that we are holding aloft? What is it that we are holding in front of us? Are we holding up aloft graven images? Have we been told too many times in our education, heard too many times that we should not worship a graven image? Are we clear about our orthodox Christianity, what it is that makes us orthodox? We see around us all the time in this little chapel, frescoes, paintings, icons. Are we clear what it is that makes us orthodox? Is it even the icons themselves that make us orthodox? On the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the first Sunday of Lent... The first Sunday of Lent is pushed out, really, in a way, if you think about it, the first Sunday of Lent is actually pushed out of the way to make way for the Sunday of Orthodoxy. It wasn't the f- always the, f- the thing that was celebrated in the first Sunday of Lent. It wasn't until 843 that this particular festival... So the end, almost the end of the first millennia, that this particular way of celebrating the first Sunday of Lent came about. Why? Remember where we are in the Divine Liturgy, because this helps us a little bit to understand. Remember that we are working our way through the Divine Liturgy, and we're at the, level, at the point of the consecration of the gifts and the elevation of the gifts. Jesus Christ has broken the bread and blessed it and given thanks and said, Take and eat, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you for the remission of sins. And he has lifted the chalice and said, Drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. And the celebrating priest or bishop, with a deacon on his behalf, if there is a deacon, lifts up those gifts in the same way almost as you are lifting up your icons, says, remembering therefore this saving commandments and those things that have come to pass for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. And he calls out, singing, offering you yours of your own on behalf of you all and for all. And the choir respond to that, singing, We hymn you, we bless you, we give thanks to you, O Lord, and we pray to you, our God. And the priest continues this prayer. Again, we offer you this reasonable worship without the shedding of blood. Or a slightly better translation, we offer you this reason-endowed worship without the shedding of blood. 
reason-endowed worship. Not a superstitious worship, but a reason-endowed worship, a thought-through worship. Now that word worship in English, forgive me if English is your second language, well this word worship is not English either, it's old Anglo-Saxon, and it's also not a good word either because it also confuses us. Because what is it that we do with icons? And this has caused controversy and problems, not just in 843, not for hundreds of years leading up to 843, but here in the UK, we couldn't let it rest. We carried on having arguments about this right the way through into the 13th century, into the 17th century. So if you go into any British church, you will see that there are no longer frescoes on the walls. There are no longer paintings. There are no longer icons. Because we didn't restore icons. Because even into the Puritan Reformation, we whitewashed the walls. We chipped away at the frescoes, at the plaster, to re with, remove all the wonderful paintings that were on the walls of the churches, the ancient churches here in the UK. And believe me, they were there. There are many hints, if you look very closely at the ancient churches, at the walls, you'll find what looks like little blood-red markings in some of the stones right up in the corners. And they're not blood, by the way. Some of them might be, but most of the times they're not blood-red because they are the foundations of the fresco of the plaster work that would have contained and would have been the mounting of the plaster that would have mounted the frescoes, that would have decorated all British churches through this period of the 840s that we are celebrating today on the Sunday of Orthodoxy, right the way up through to the 13th century, right the way to the 17th century at the Puritan Reformation. The word worship here is what we have left of that time because there's an awful confusion about what we do when we pray to God and what we do when we approach a holy icon. As we try and translate from Greek into Latin and then into Anglo-Saxon, worship is an Anglo-Saxon term, and then into modern English. Without the notes in front of me, which is my usual trick, is I've written stuff down and then left it behind me. The Greek term proskinesi, extended back before even the ancient Greeks started using it. And this refers to a very precise external process of giving veneration to a person who is more important to you. And extended from ancient Persians, Alexander the Great tried to introduce it to the Greeks. They didn't like it <coughs> because they considered themselves equal. But the idea was that you would give veneration to someone was more important, whether you're kissing their face, whether you're kissing their hand, whether you're kissing their breast. It was a court ritual to show your status within 
that particular society. And this extended as the emperors decided they wanted to become gods, small g gods, extended to the idea of giving external veneration to a very powerful emperor, up to the point of giving external veneration to a very powerful person who decided he wanted to be a god. And of course, as Christians, we weren't going to give that type of veneration to God, we would give a different type of veneration to God. We would give latria, adore God. We would internally love God. We would adore God. Now, interestingly, latria in Greek is translated into a Latin word, latria, almost exactly the same spelling. It's a bit awkward. But here's how English or language slips and slides because it's okay for me to adore my wife, but venerate my wife, that's not quite the same, is it? But I can adore God, but venerate God is not the same thing. In the same way as we might venerate an icon, but we give adoration to God. Now, my point here, having thrown a whole bunch of words at you, worship, of course, as an Anglo-Saxon term, referred to the proskinesi, to the external veneration of something. And then it became to mean the adoration, adoratio, Latin term. So it got monumentally confused. And the theologians got monumentally confused. I'm not a theologian, so I can be horrible to theologians. My point here is that things got monumentally confused. And the words that we use in the liturgy can slip and slide. And this led to people getting terribly confused about what it is that we were doing to icons or with icons and with the paintings that were on the walls. And people were literally accusing one another of worshipping, in other words, giving that which was only due to God, that adoration that was due to God, to the saints, to pieces of wood or pieces of plaster on the wall. Let's worry a little less about the word that we use, whether it's a Greek word or a Latin word or an Anglo-Saxon word. Let us be careful and clear and reasonable about what it is we do and to whom we do it. We give the most highest regard and love and adoration and veneration the highest possible thing that you give, that you can possibly give, give only to God. The best you have, the highest and noblest emotion that you can possibly muster, give only to God. Not to the icon. Not to the saint depicted in the icon. 
not even to Christ depicted in the icon. Give the highest everything that you have, the most beautiful thoughts, the most wondrous ideas, the most heart-bursting love that you can master, give only to the idea of God, to the historical reality of Jesus Christ. Then everything else you have left over, give to saints, give to icons, and give to your beloved family. Leave the technological words and technical words to the theologians to sort out, because they're in a mess, and still remain in a mess, because the liturgy still uses an Anglo-Saxon term like worship, which is no longer accurate, no longer helpful perhaps. Or at least let us take that word and give it new meaning. Give it the meaning that we require today. And that is to give our everything, our most beautiful thoughts, our most greatest love, and give it only to God. As we come into Lent, we struggle. We sit under the fig leaf tree. And we struggle with our own thoughts, our minds, our own inability to love. And Lent is a time where we can learn to love, whether on our own, in a solitude of our life, or learn to love one another, to reach out to see another person as God. And not God just as a mere abstract idea, well saved. But God is love, not merely as an abstract, but as action to reach out, to reach inwards deeply into our hearts, to know ourselves. And to know the other. Because if God remains an abstract, a mere idea, then God is not incarnate. God is not Jesus. God is the God of the Jews. As we heard in the epistle of all the saints, all the prophets, who fought the good fight in the Old Testament, but did not get the promise, did not receive the promise, because the promise was not an idea, but a human being, God, Jesus Christ. Lent is here to tell us that Jesus Christ is man, and man becomes Jesus Christ, <coughs> becomes divine in and through Jesus Christ. As we ascend through Lent towards our perfect humanity, towards the cross, through the cross, 
through our hell to resurrection, we offer a reason-endowed worship using our minds, using our brains, using the intelligence and education that God has given us. We pray, we implore to God and Jesus Christ to send down Holy Spirit upon us and upon the gifts that he has set before us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.